The sermon text reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Well, August of 1996, I was at an orientation meeting for Reformed Theological Seminary, and there's a group of about seven of us, and the facilitator began by saying, introduce who you are, where you're from, and also where you did your undergrad. And so I began by saying, hi, my name is Scott Armstrong. I'm from Atlanta, and I went to Furman University in this beautiful blonde. On the other side of this little circle, she said, you went to Furman. So did I. We need to talk. And I looked at her and I was like, yeah, we need to talk. Um, now, if she was staying right here, she'd say, yeah, what'd you do about that, buddy? You know, for the first couple of years. Admittedly, I didn't do much about it. But eventually, uh, we, we got married. It was Kirsten. And, and, I, and I mentioned that because my, my life was forever changed. Just like there's before Kirsten and with Kirsten, right? The, those are like the, the pivot point for me was meeting her 26 years ago because it didn't just change my life then, eventually getting married a few years later, but it continues to change my life. And it will continue to change my life. And there's some of you who are married and you say, I remember that, I had a similar story. Uh, and even if you're not married, it doesn't matter. Like you can you point to something probably where you're saying before this and after this, something that was pivotal in your life. Family experience, job, something, something like that. But I'm here to tell you this morning, Resurrection Sunday, that your best story of before and after is nothing compared to this one. That's what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the most extensive and most beautiful passage on the resurrection outside the Gospels. In fact, in some ways, it's even bigger than that because in the Gospel accounts, you have the telling, almost in a summation uh, viewpoint. But here, you have 55 verses. We're only looking at a few of them. One thing after another where he says the resurrection is everything. What I want to share with you this morning is I want to share with you how it changes everything in your life. 
everything. And I recognize that for some of you this morning, you're coming in and, and saying, I, I'm not at the top of my spiritual game, so to speak. It, it's, it's maybe the first miracle I believe in is the fact that I'm here this morning. But even if it is, in regards to where you, are, where you would find yourself or where you would declare yourself on the faith journey, what I want to suggest to you is that the resurrection is everything. And Paul's right. If it didn't happen, if it didn't happen in history, our faith is vain. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We might as well. And so what is it about the resurrection that changes everything? Three things. First, I want to share with you how it changes your mind. Second, how it changes your heart, what you feel. But then lastly, how it changes your life, what you do. So we're looking at that, the heart, the mind, and your life. Let's look at the first thing here, the mind. In verses 1 and 2, Paul begins here. This is what begins his, his epic uh, argument, as it were, for 55 verses. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The church of Corinth was, it was a mighty place. It was a, it was a citadel of cultural power in the Roman world, one of the great cities, very cosmopolitan. And much like great cosmopolitan cities, including Atlanta, I would put on that list there, it, it can be difficult to believe, certainly have orthodox belief. And so this young Christian community is struggling, and I call it sandcastle faith. What I mean by that is like when you go to the beach and your kids are making the sandcastle, or admit it, some of you adults, you're making the sandcastles with your kids there, right? And, and what happens, that first wave comes. It just takes one wave, right? You don't want to build your life on, on sand, right? And so that first wave comes. It just takes one wave, and that's how close the Corinthian Christians are to giving up their faith. They're just one breaking wave away from giving it up. They're struggling mightily with their faith. And so he begins here by saying, let me remind you, like past, present, future, you may have noticed that there, like what, what saved you, what is going on in your life, and what's to come, past, present, and future. But let me remind you of your faith. And then he says this in verses 3 through 6. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I want to lay out before you now the, the challenge to our minds to what we believe here. Not just for you that, that may say, yeah, I, I call myself, identify myself as a follower of Christ, but also, because this is Corinth as well, those who'd say, you know, I'm not yet ready to believe or I'm on the journey here. What would be, Paul, what is Paul saying? What would I say to you this morning on Resurrection Sunday? As to why to believe. Paul says here, he died. He was buried and he was raised. Now, the first part here, he died. There were plenty of messiahs prior to the coming of Jesus. When I say plenty of messiahs, these are would-be messiahs. There are plenty of people who said, let me, let me tell you what salvation for Israel looks like. And they all ended up the same way. They ended up on crosses. There was nothing in and of itself. That's why at Good Friday, that original first Good Friday, some of you were here for the Good Friday service. And imagine 2,000 years ago, if you're there on Good Friday, there's nothing new about how the story ends. There's nothing. Believe me. That's why the disciples were so crestfallen. That's why even his own mother was crestfallen. 
Some uh, uh, woman was, uh, uh, I was reading her devotional in preparation for Good Friday, and she says they were there on, uh, they're they're waiting uh, on Saturday, in the middle of Holy Saturday, they were waiting. And I thought, I don't know that they were waiting. Because that assumes that they knew the resurrection. And it seems apparent from the gospel accounts, they did not expect it. And, and so I, I say that to say, that all these other messiahs have come before these would-be messiahs, and they have failed over and over and over again. And so that story is no different. But what made the story of Christianity radically different was Easter Sunday morning. It was the resurrection. That's why Jesus, why Paul says this is the only event that matters. In fact, if you think about it, the only reason why we have the four Gospels is because of the resurrection. No one would have written Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. None of them would have been written. No one would have gone back to write about a failed messiah. But they went back because of that event. They went back and they told the story of Jesus. And they said, aha, I get it now. This is why it happened the way that it did. Because of the resurrection. Now, everything makes sense. Everything has come together. Right? And, and so I want to say, some of you are saying, okay, Scott, I get that they thought that. But why should I think that? 2000, this is my life 2,000 years later. 2,000 years removed from these stories. Why in the world would I believe that the things have happened. Well, I think that's why it's so important when Paul says he appeared to more than 500, most of whom are still alive. Why is that important? Look, if you wanted to make up a story, let's say it's just you making up the story, the last thing that you're going to do is, is make your story historical. Make it, make it live and breathe. Make it, make it make or break based upon whether something happened in history. It would be a lot easier for Paul to say, well, you know what? He wasn't raised in body. It didn't happen in history. Yes, that, but in our hearts, he was resurrected. Believe me today, you, there's some churches even here in the city where you can go and that's the message that you will hear. At least it happens spiritually. But that's not what Paul says. Paul makes his story based upon something that historically happened. And not only that, it wasn't a cabal of just a few people coming together to say, hey guys, let's get together and make up a story here. Let's hold to it. No, it was more than 500, most of whom were still alive. It's sort of like this. Imagine... Okay, so 26 years ago, I met Kirsten, and then four years later after that, 22 years ago, we got married. And imagine if you said, July 1, 2000, I'm not so sure that you guys actually got married. And I would say, well, there were a few hundred people at that wedding that day, most of whom are still alive. 22 years later, you could go to them, and you could say, where were you at 5 o'clock on July 1, 2000? What was going on? What was happening? That's what Paul's doing. Paul is saying, look... And it's just said to one king, King Agrippa, later on in the book of Acts, he says, we did not do these things hidden. We did not do these things in a corner. He says, look, you know, you've seen, you've heard the eyewitness testimony. And not only that, look at the life of Paul. Look at, Paul was not someone who was looking to believe. Who was Paul? You know, that's why he says in verses 6 and following, did you notice there, he says, I'm, I'm the most unworthy of people to receive Christ. Why? Why do you say that? Because he persecuted the church. And of course, very famously, the road to Damascus is where he meets Jesus. Saul, Saul, or Paul. Why do you persecute me? Why did you, what are you doing? And he turns his whole life around, the road to Damascus. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He wasn't looking for Christ. He wasn't looking for the cross. He certainly wasn't looking for the resurrection. But his life has completely changed. And, I, and that's the last thing I want to say about the life of Paul. Consider his integrity. Consider the writer of this history. I, uh, some of you know that I love history. And, and uh, this is a work by David McCullough called 1776. Some of you are familiar. 
I could have easily picked up some other works in my library, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin and her works on history and the presidents and McCullough's work on Washington and others. And, and chances are, if you love history, or even if you don't, uh, chances are you, you see a book like this, this is the Pulitzer Prize winner. You pick up a book like this and your first thought isn't, ah, oh, didn't happen. No. And, and why would, you know, the, the life of our nation, something saying this is the pivotal year for our nation. Why, why would you trust that what McCullough writes is actually reflective of actual history? Why would, because of his integrity. If you know anything about David McCullough, he's a man of integrity. And I, I, and I just want to say that to you this morning. If you're struggling, say, how do I know these things happen? Look at the integrity of Paul. Paul, who gave up everything. He was a, he was a rabbi of rabbis, as it were, studying under them. An erudite fellow, who, a great uh, great uh, communicator and persecuting the church, and he gave up everything and eventually was martyred for his faith. And 500 people, most of whom were also martyred for the faith. Peter himself, first one he says that Paul says appears to, he was crucified upside down for he felt he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner of Jesus Christ. I laid that out here to you before. We have every reason to believe. And if here at the end of all that you say, well, I just, I have a hard time believing that someone would be resurrected. Look, that's fine. Hold on to that if you want to. But that is a presupposition of philosophy, not of history. Paul doesn't make his appeal to philosophy here. He says, I've lived through these events. And so you can make your appeal in philosophy saying, I don't believe that resurrections take place. But the facts on the ground, according to Paul and all these witnesses that you could go to say, this is what happened. I'm, how do you explain that? And so I believe that that. Even, even for those of us who say, well, Christianity is about faith. Yes, it is, but it's also about reason. That we do not have to check our minds at the door in order to enter a house of worship. We have reasons to believe. And, and this is where Paul goes with the resurrection. He said the resurrection happened in history. And it is the power of faith because it happened in history. But it leads to the second thing here, and that is in our faith. How is this hope for us? So the change of her heart. Look at verses 12 through 14. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith or your life is in vain. Let me tell you why that's important. When he says vain, the word there means empty. He's saying if there's no empty tomb, then your faith is empty. That's what he's actually saying. If there's no empty tomb, your faith isn't empty. Then later on, he says, you are still in your sins. You're still in despair. You're still in hopelessness. And later on, he says, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You might as well live this life up to the full and all of its despair. It doesn't matter because this is the only life you're going to get. This is as close to the good life as you will ever receive. And he says, look, this is a picture of despair. This is the resurrection. If it didn't take place in history, you're in despair. And Paul is writing an epistle of hope here. What does that have to do with our lives? Everything. How does it change our hearts? I remember in the church that I grew up in, it was a church where every Sunday I heard the same message, is that Christ died for your sins. Now, now you better live a different life. It was a lot of moralism, actually. And, and, and our hope wasn't this life. Our hope was like, that eventually we're going to be taken away from this God-forsaken planet. That was what was taught to me every Sunday. We're going to be, we're, we're going to be transported like we're going to be in a spiritual realm, a spiritual world, as it were. Right? 
And I want you to hear this morning, that is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that is a truncated gospel. That the good news is not that that by and by, pie in the sky, that we're going to be released from this God-forsaken world. No, the the message of the gospel and the fullness isn't just Good Friday, it is Resurrection Sunday. It is the power of Christ that has come in the bodily resurrection, which means there's a transformation of our world to come. Listen to what Keller says, former pastor of Redeemer Church. The biblical view of things is resurrection. Not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life you always wanted. The life you always wanted. I want you to stop and think about the life you've always wanted right now. What comes to mind? For some of you, uh, you just were transported to the beach, right? You can smell the salt air. And, and the warm ocean water as, it, as the sand you know, weaves between your, your toes there. and um, the, You're walking hand in hand with your beloved. Or maybe you're saying, no, it's not the beach, Scott. I'm up in the mountains right now and sitting in an Adirondack chair at the lake. You know, you're, you're snow skiing. It's that feast, that feast of feast. There's something in your mind that you're thinking about right now. And I'm here to tell you. That's just a taste of things to come. But it is a picture of what we were intended for. To come back to Eden, but to a new Eden, to a new chapter in the cosmos. And what what Keller is saying is, you take the best of this world. You take all the old out of it, all the evil out of it. You take the death out of it. And what remains is everything that God intends for us. Listen to this. You are not going to be a disembodied spirit. That is not your destiny. Who would die for a life like that? Who would desire, who would want to spend eternity as a disembodied spirit? And yet so many think that's what this teaches. That's what our faith is about. Or for those outside of Christian faith, that there's some sort of sense of afterlife and that we end up in this impersonal existence, a drop in the the ocean of existence, impersonal, or maybe some sort of disembodied spirit. I'm here to tell you, hell no to that. Maybe the hell's not the right word there. But heaven, yes. Uh, that, is, that is not where we're headed. And, and so I just I love this vision. Uh, Martin Luther once said that if he was asked, if, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? And you know what he said? I'd plant a tree. I'd plant a tree. Verse 20. Listen to what Paul says. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. On Monday in our staff meeting, we were talking about this passage, and the first question was, what is the first fruits about? What does that mean? Well, it means the first of the harvest, the beginning of the return from the vineyard. Imagine that you go into a nice restaurant, and you order a nice bottle of wine, and, and that waiter brings it out to you, holds it in front of you. Is this the one that you ordered? Yes, it's the one I ordered. All right. And then they, they pop it open and, and, you, and they pour you that first sip. And you take it and you say, this is why I ordered that wine. This is why I spent all that money on this one because I wanted this vintage this year, this grape. And that's what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ, his resurrection is the beginning of a new chapter that we will all experience that what happened to Jesus 
where he's sitting on the edge of the Sea of Galilee and he's saying, saying, let's have a meal together. And where he says, Thomas, touch my side. I'm not a spirit. Touch my side. Feel me physically. What happened on the other side? It says, that is your trajectory. That all things old will be made new. All death will be put in reverse to reverse the curse. When I was a kid, I, I read uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the whole series by C.S. Lewis. Many of you I know did. I'm sure if you haven't done that, you've seen the movies. But I reread them as, as a young adult, my 20s. And I wept. I did not weep when I was a child. You know why? Because I was so young, I experienced so little of life. But I wept as an adult because I had begun to experience loss. I'd begun to experience pain and grieving. And so when I read the story of Aslan breaking the stone of death and then transporting the pins of these children and all of creation into the new heavens and new earth, Aslan country, further up and further in, if you ever wonder why I say that, that's where it comes from, further up and further into Aslan country. And as a, as a 20-something young adult, I wept and I said to myself, if C.S. Lewis, a mere mortal, could, could picture the renewal of all things in this way to cause me to weep, how much more so will actual reality be? It changes our hearts, you see. It's not just for the mind, but the good news of the gospel, Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday, is a good change for our hearts to bring us to hope. In the midst of a broken world, ripped anew by war, and all the things that we, we deal with every day. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says elsewhere. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. And if that's right, then it leads to the last thing here. Or it should. And it's changed lives. Our lives should look like the resurrection, is what Paul says. He says this in so many different ways. And, and let me begin by, by asking this question or saying this to you. Why, is, why should that be important this morning? It should be about more than what happens to our minds. But more than about what we feel in terms of hope in our hearts. But should lead to resurrection lives. Living in that power. I was uh, on uh, several days ago. I was uh, leaving to go be with one of our elders for lunch. And as I left, you know, the alleyway, back side of the office, some of you know where that's at. As I came out, there was a man about 20 feet away from me. And he locked eyes with me. He saw the door I came out of. And he said, are you a pastor? <laughs> and I said, yes. And, uh, and he, he goes, uh, come over here. And so I did. And, and he said, do you believe this? And he wasn't talking about Easter. He was like, just talking about Christianity in general. Do you believe this? And I thought, you know, actually, like I said earlier, in the city, that's actually a legitimate question. Like, do you actually believe this? Because you won't always hear that, that the answer is yes. But I said, absolutely. And I said, you know, I'm preaching on that this Sunday. That it happened in history. And he began to weep. And he said, said you, hey, you don't need to convince me to be a Christian. I already am. But he says, but man, I'm, I've been living. He's talking about his addiction to Coke. 
weed and alcohol and a few other things going on in his life, all the different vices. He's like, he's like, man, I, I just don't know what to do. I need to get, I'm on, I'm in a bad place. I want to get out of this. And I said, right there in the alleyways, people were walking by. I said, can we pray? And, uh, and at first he, he wouldn't let me you know, put a hand on him. And then I closed my eyes and started to pray anyway. And he just grabbed my hands. I mean, he held on to him like with an iron grip. And we prayed together for a few minutes. Just prayed for the power of the resurrection to come into this man's life and into this man's heart. Why is it important to believe with Paul that it happened in history? That it's more than just a great spiritual story, a great moral lesson that it actually happened. Because only the power of Christ can defeat death in our lives today. And, and that's what it means to live out of resurrection power in your marriage, in your sexuality, in your economics, and so many other things. Simon Sinek, some of you know that writer, he, he, said, he said simply this, what you do proves what you believe. What you do proves what you believe. Last week, uh, Mike finished our series on, for Lent on, and he preached on sex. You know, some of you are saying, man, I should have been here for that week. Yeah, you should have been here. It was awesome, right? You know? But it was this vision of, of like, of redeemed sexuality. And it, it leads to, it's one of many things in that whole series that we talked about, redemption of things. But listen to what Paul says in verse 25 about, about the reign of Christ. He says, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And what Paul goes on to say is that, is that that must, that it, it's inevitable, has to happen. It has to happen in our lives. It happens it has to happen in our sexuality. It has to happen in, in our ethics, in the, in the marketplace. It has to happen in our pocketbooks. It has to happen, you know, in our mental health. It has to happen in our emotions. Like, and he must reign. In every, if he is Lord of everything, if he defeated death itself, then he must reign in our lives if we are followers of Christ. We must practice the resurrection today. This is... And, and so I, I, if I understand it, it, it leads to two things here. This is where I'm going to close. Two things. First, it, it leads to a passion in your life for renewal. A passion for renewal in your life. Here's what I mean. It means to embrace a paradox personally. In one sense, if the resurrection is true, it demotes the world. Why? Because this world is not all there is. Meaning our current reality, our current experience is not everything. Right? We are reminded that one day, no more tears, no more sorrow, as the writer Isaiah said in that passage that Jim read earlier. That one day, no more tears, no more sorrow. And so we remember that. But in the other way, the paradox is the world is promoted because this world is our final home. Without the death, without the evil, without the sin. The new heavens, new earth, it says in Revelation, at the very end, it says they will be one. And so it's a paradox that we live in the tension of. But not just that, we, because of the resurrection, we are able to deny ourselves pleasure today outside of the life of God. Right? We can deny ourselves the pleasures. At the same time, we promote pleasure. The feasting of the wine, the first fruits. We know that when we have a good meal, when we have a beautiful charcuterie board for a women's retreat, these things are mindful for us. They represent, they reflect to us the kingdom to come in its fullness. Don't you see, we live in paradox. You see, but then secondly there, regarding that, there's a change of our world. I look around this room, I see some of you involved in changing 
you're involved with not-for-profits, you're involved in for-profits, but you do it in a way that you're saying, I want to see the marketplace change. I want to see uh, homelessness change. I want to see the economic structures change. Listen to what N.T. Wright says about all of this. He's my favorite theologian, by the way, on the resurrection. He writes in a way that no one else does. The message of the resurrection is that this present world matters, that the problems and pains of this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes what the New Testament insists that it is, good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. The celebration of Easter in a world where injustice, violence, degradation, all manner of wickedness are still endemic symbolizes that God is not prepared to tolerate such things. I ask you, friends, not just in your bodies individually, but also in your lives with your practices, with your workplace, with what you do between the Sundays, are you pursuing the resurrection and the renewal of all things? That's what this day is about. That's the reason why it's written up there on our wall says we're about the renewal of all things because of the resurrection. That's why that's our mission. That's why we want this church to be about that here in the city of Atlanta. And it says this in verse 26, the very last verse in our section today. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let me tell you why that's so important. Because here's the last thing that brings you joy. You say, Scott, joy is never mentioned. It's not. In 55 verses, the word joy is never used, but it's everywhere. Let me show you a picture, two pictures, actually. Do we have those? This is a VE Day. And, um, and after, this is a picture from England, actually. It's VE Day. And then the second picture is from the United States on VE Day, the victory over Europe when the Nazis were defeated. It's one of the most iconic photographs of World War II. A sailor just finds a girl on the street and kisses her right there in the ticker tape uh, parade near Times Square in New York City. And if you, you think you've seen parades. You, you didn't see anything if you weren't there. Like, there's a, the parade of parades, this ticker tape parade, celebrating the destruction of the empire of the Nazis. That's what VE Day was. And let me tell you, there were still battles to be fought. Victory over Japan was still a few months away. But you know what? There's joy in the streets because evil had been destroyed. That's what the resurrection is about. Joy. I mean, even, even though there are battles yet to be fought in our lives, even though there is literally war taking place in the Ukraine, and by the way, plenty of other places that just didn't make the news, but matter just as much to God as Ukraine. But these are places where, where there is tears, there is sorrow, and you look to your own lives, your own loss and your own grief. You look to the pain in your bodies, the cancer and and, and the lost marriages, the lost relationships, and the careers that just didn't take place, take place in the way that you wanted to. And you can be very easily given over to despondency. But death will not win. And Paul is sure of it. And it has changed his life. And it can change your life. And so that's what I offer to you today as your pastor. Here on Resurrection Sunday. May you live in the resurrection in the midst of suffering. In the midst of grief, in the midst of pain, may you remember the joy that transcends the pain, the pain of death itself. For death itself will be swallowed. Death swallows everything, but death itself will be swallowed. You hold on to that, and the power of the resurrection, may it change your life, 
May you live out of resurrection. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the midst of war, in the midst of personal battles, in the midst of hopelessness, depression, failed marriages, failed relationships, careers that just never took off, our bodies that fall apart. In the midst of all that, we can say, as Paul did at the very end of this passage, many verses later, where, O death, is your sting? You are a defeated enemy. You are living on borrowed time. Yes, the graveyards remind us of the brevity of life. But it is the resurrection that reminds us of the brevity of death. And so may we live with that hopeful confidence. May you change our minds. May you change our hearts. May we live out of change of the resurrection in our lives. We praise your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And now we take some time to respond to God's word first through confession. And before we pray the prayer of confession together, I want to give you a moment now. So just to reflect on God's word and what it was just brought.